Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 4. We're in Colossians chapter 4 this morning, and we're looking at verses 2 through 6. We only have one more sermon in our series in Colossians, and then we are heading into 1 Corinthians, which I, I know is going to be one of those books that's going to benefit our congregation greatly. But um, as we come this morning to, our, to, to God's Word, we come to Colossians 4, and we're looking at verses 2 through 6. And as usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your Bibles open and to be reading along with me there. Uh, this morning. Before we do, let's pray and pray with me that God would bless his word as it's preached and as it's received and believed this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we lift up our voices to you to show our dependence on you. We would not come to the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word without asking you to send your spirit in great power to accompany your word, to reveal Christ in us, that he might be formed in us. Father, we would see him and hear him and know him who is our Savior, the one to whom we are united, the one who is the hope of glory. Father, we pray that I would not be seen and heard, but that Christ would be seen and heard and that your word would have a powerful, effective, transforming work in our hearts this morning. Lord, we plead with you to give what only you can give, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 4, beginning in verse 2, the Apostle Paul writes these words, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I'm sure that you all have heard people say in recent years that religion is a private matter. That's become a very popular slogan in the postmodern movement that don't talk to me about your religion. I have my religion, and religion is a private matter. And as I thought about that saying, I thought, isn't that interesting? Any religion that's a private matter is a religion that doesn't sanctify the speech of an individual. Any religion that is cooped up and kept to the self is a religion that is worthless because it's a religion that doesn't do anything to sanctify the speech. And the Bible has so much to say about words. The Bible opens with God speaking the world into existence through his word. And the Bible itself, God reveals himself, the living God reveals his son and reveals his will for us through words. And we are a people of words. We are a people of many words. I thought about Googling how many words people speak on average in a day. I'm sure it would be astonishing if we knew how much we actually said every day and how much of that speech, how much of that speech, if I were able to put a recorder in each of our houses, unbeknownst to you, would we be ashamed of If we had to listen back to all the things we say in secret to our spouse, to our friends, on the telephone, in private conversations, how much of that speech we would be ashamed of. I think it's interesting because the tongue, as James says, is so small, so little, but it's a world of iniquity. It's a world of iniquity. One of the smallest members in our body is a world of iniquity, and that member 
as every other part of us needs the gospel to sanctify it. And what the Apostle Paul here at the end of this book is going to say, he started this book with this great declaration about who Christ is. And he said that Jesus created all things. He is before all things. In him all things consist. He is the head of the body of the church. And that he fills all things. And that God was in him reconciling us to himself through his shed blood at the cross. And that all the divine mysteries of the universe are only known and understood in Jesus. And then he ends the book going from that great, great declaration of the greatest, most infinite, glorious mysteries found in Jesus Christ. And he says, and they have an impact on the smallest members of our bodies. And he closes this book, interestingly, by saying, by saying that we ought to be using our tongues if we're in Christ. Number one, in how we communicate to God. Number two, in who we communicate to God for, and number three, and how we use it in spreading the kingdom. It's interesting to me that God takes something seemingly so insignificant like the tongue, sanctifies it through the gospel, and then uses it as the advancement of his kingdom, as an instrument of advancing his kingdom. I'm sure you have heard that statement, that very wrong statement by St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel always, use words only when necessary. Well, the Apostle Paul is going to say, pray for me so that I will always use words, to preach the gospel clearly. That's actually the biblical, the biblical correction to that statement. Notice that there in, in verse 2, Paul has now transitioned from uh, talking about how the gospel works out in all these different relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and servants. And now the apostle is saying that the gospel doesn't stop there. It doesn't just keep these relationships um, in their proper order, but it works down into the very fabric of your heart and how the heart expresses itself in words. And one of the greatest marks that you belong to Jesus, one of the greatest tests, the litmus test, if you want to know, am I really a Christian? Is my profession sincere? Am I really in Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul will say, a man and a woman, a boy and a girl in Jesus Christ is a man or a woman, a boy and a girl who prays. There is nothing that so tells your spiritual condition so much as whether or not you have a healthy prayer life. Now, I think Paul is going to say here in verse 2, he's going, to, he's going to intimate that prayer is often something that can fall by the wayside. Notice how he puts it in verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Paul has to say that. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Don't grow weary. Don't become self-sufficient. Don't think that in yourself you can take to yourself everything that you need. I think that's one of the greatest dangers for Christians is, okay, I have all this stuff in Christ. I have my sins forgiven. I, I have new life. I have all these promises. I have all these good things. So I can just go out there now in my own strength and minister in my own strength and live the Christian life in my own strength. And Paul says, no, continue steadfastly in prayer. What is prayer? What is prayer? I wonder if I asked all of you to define prayer, what you would say. I want to tell you a story about D.L. Moody. He was the famous 19th century Baptist evangelist. And Moody had taken a trip to Scotland. And as the story goes, Moody was staying in the home of a man. And he was witnessing to an unbeliever there. And the the unbeliever had come up to Moody and he had said, What is prayer? I don't understand what prayer is. And an eight- or nine-year-old girl who was living in the home heard the discussion, and she started chanting and reciting something. And she came in, and her dad said, called her over, and he said, Honey, I want you to tell Mr. Moody and this gentleman 
what prayer is. And this eight or nine-year-old girl said, what is prayer? She said, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Now, this is an eight or nine-year-old girl quoting the shorter catechism like a good little Scottish girl and magnificently explaining what so many people don't understand. Let me read that again. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. I think it would be wrong to reduce prayer to asking God just for things. I think that's the big part of prayer. But prayer is really us acknowledging our sinfulness, God's holiness, God's greatness, our insufficiency, and saying, Lord, we have nothing in and of ourselves. I wrote this on my Facebook wall this week, um, that prayer was us ascribing greatness to God and insufficiency to us. And a high school friend wrote on my Facebook wall, no, it's not. We're not insufficient, which just showed his insufficiency. Um, And I thought, isn't that ironic? He went on to tell me what he thought prayer was. We pray for this and this and this and this. And I'm thinking he can do nothing about all those things. So he's saying we pray for that. But he's saying prayer doesn't show our insufficiency. Prayer absolutely shows our insufficiency. We do not have resources. Think about the persistent widow who knocks and knocks and knocks and knocks until the judge finally answers her petition. Now, why does God love persistent prayer? Why do sometimes we have to pray often and long for something. It's not that God's mean and wants to make us wait. It's in the words of John Piper, God loves the sound of knocking and the giver gets the glory. God loves the sound of knocking and the giver gets the glory. God is glorified when we pray. Prayer is saying, Lord, you are God. You are the greatest being of which there is none greater. You are my God. You are my Savior. You are the Father of lights of whom there is no shadow of turning and from whom every good gift comes. And when we pray, we are saying automatically, I need you. I believe you. I trust you. Lord, you can do it. You do it. You do it. Now, what do we pray for? Notice that Paul doesn't tell us. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I think there's an assumption that we pray for everything and anything. I don't think that Paul means by this what some monastics have taken this to mean, that we have to have all-night vigils of prayer. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means more of what the Puritans said about dagger prayers. You're driving down the road. Obviously, they had horses. We have cars. You throw up little prayers. You're going somewhere. You're going to meet someone. You say, Lord, help me. Give me, give me strength to minister to this person. Fill me with your spirit. Enable me to listen to them, to care for them, to understand where they are. It's it's praying at every turn, in every opportunity for God to help us. Because there's never a time when we don't need the Lord to help us. There's never a time when we don't need him to help us and to intervene. And listen, there's nothing so beautiful as when my little boys come to me and say, Daddy, 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 can you get this down? Daddy. Will you do this? Daddy, will you, will you get this for me? I can't get this. It's one of the most beautiful things. I long to hear my little boy say that to me. Now, the living God, who is our father, longs to hear his children say, Daddy, I can't get this. Daddy, will you do this for me? Daddy, will you help me? He loves that. He loves the sound of his people praying and crying out for the things that we can't do for ourselves. And I think, notice what Paul 
attaches to this in verse 2. He says, being watchful in it with prayer. He kind of tells us how how the gospel is to so shape our communion with God. Because in the first place, know this, the reason we speak, the reason we have language, the reason we have words is so that we can speak to God. It is not first and foremost so I can speak to you and you can speak to me. The reason that we speak is that we created an Adam to have communion with God. And so Paul starts by saying the gospel should season your tongues in how we speak to God. And notice what he says, two things, being watchful and being thankful. Being watchful and being thankful. Why do we have to be watchful? Because there are so many variables. There are so many things outside of our control. There are so many things that are unexpected that happen to us during the day. I had one of the hardest weeks. I've had one thing after another after another. And as I meditated on this and as I thought about this, I thought the only thing, the only response I can give to what's happening is that I am to pray more. It was John Bunyan who said, whenever you have the fullest schedule and you feel like you don't have time to pray is when you need to pray the most. Whenever you have the heaviest load is when you need to stop, not trying to do it, but pray the most. And that's hard. And so Paul says, listen, be watchful. Be watchful, be steadfast, and then he says, be thankful. I think it's interesting because in the heart of a true believer, the heart of a true believer is a heart of thankfulness. Only only true believers are thankful people. I've met and talked to hundreds of thousands of people in my life, and there's a marked difference. There's a marked difference between someone who has had their heart changed by the gospel of Christ and someone who hasn't, when they look at difficult circumstances, one may see the difficulties, they may waver in complaint for a time, but there is inevitably an outcome of thankfulness. I have a friend whose wife is dying. She may die today. She's very young in New York City, and she's dying of cancer. And a year and a half ago, he said to me, I'm worried about Christine's faith. She's bitter at God right now going through this. Last night he said, my wife said, I am so exceedingly blessed to be going through this. She's dying of cancer, and she said, I am blessed to be going through this. She, has, she is a woman who has had the grace of the gospel so sanctify her heart that her tongue is full of thankfulness. Is full of thankfulness. She's ready to go be with her Savior. She knows the glory waits her. She can be thankful in the midst of the difficulties because of the grace that she has received in Jesus. And Paul is saying, listen, in everything, how much more should we be thankful for everything? We're not dying of cancer. We're here. We're healthy. How much should we be thankful for everything that God has brought into our life? And notice, notice now, secondly, that Paul says it first starts with our speech toward God and then who we pray to God for. Notice what he says in verse 3. At the same time... Pray for us also that God may open to us a door of the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now, I have sat in prayer meetings almost my whole life, and it's interesting when you sit in a prayer meeting, number one, how few people come to prayer meetings, and number two, what people pray for in prayer meetings. Um, I think that when we read the New Testament, we see very clearly the pattern of the greater prayers. What, what sort of things ought we to be praying for for others? Well, Paul says, listen, pray for me. Pray for ministers of the gospel. Pray for those men that God has set apart who have the everlasting gospel, who have a ministry of everlasting life, a ministry of righteousness in the spirit to proclaim the mystery 
to proclaim the gospel to sinners so that they can be saved for all of eternity. There's no greater calling. Let me say this. All callings are legitimate. There is, in one sense, no greater calling than for God to set apart someone to be a minister. And yet Paul says in that calling, in that calling, he says, I'm insufficient. Notice what his prayer intimates, that in himself, Paul, mighty Paul, with all of his theological acumen, all of his intellect, all of his mighty skill and power, all of his pedigree and training, Paul says, Paul sitting in prison, writing this letter to the Colossians says, pray for me that I would have boldness to preach the gospel as I ought to. That Paul understands the big thing. He understands the big picture. He understands what is most needful. Listen, I need you. As much as you need me as a pastor, I need you to be praying for me. This week I witnessed to several Jehovah's Witnesses, some Roman Catholics, some other sects and cults, and I came at one point to a point where I said, I can't do this in my own strength. I was getting tired. I talked to some of you about this. I need you to be praying for me. Just like Paul said, pray for me, pray for me, pray for ministers, pray for pastors, pray for missionaries, pray for church planners, pray for teachers of the gospel. And what does Paul say? Notice, notice what he says there. He says that God may open for us a door for the word. Paul wasn't a man who was ready to kick down doors and make doors open. I think sometimes in our EE society and in our Christianity Explored society, we feel like we have to take the bull by the horn and make witnessing opportunities happen. And Paul says, pray for me that God would open a door for the ministry of the word, that even the opportunity to share the gospel, even the opportunity to speak about Jesus was something that God would have to give. Now, I will say this. So often, when we're not having opportunities to witness, I would say 99% of the time it's because we're not praying for it. And my ministry will only go so far without your prayers for my ministry in this congregation. Now, Paul's going to say things to you. He's going to give you some very clear instructions about your ministry in a second. But I don't want to gloss over this. Uh, It was Charles Spurgeon who said uh, in his lectures to my students, a pastor may uh, strive in his own strength and labor in his own strength, labor in doctrine, labor in study, labor in outreach, and yet not labor in prayer, and his ministry grow and grow and grow because a little old lady in the back was praying for him. And when he gets to heaven, he will realize that all those doors that opened and all those people sitting under his ministry, no matter how diligent he was in his own work, were the answers of the prayers of the little old lady in the back of the church who prayed for him. And she will get, she will get the honor of having prayed down the divine blessing for his ministry. Now, I want us to take this seriously, because at the end of the day, I'm not smart enough. Paul wasn't smart enough. I'm not strong enough. It doesn't matter how much schooling I've had. It doesn't matter how zealous I am. If God does not open the doors and answers to the prayers of the people of God, the doors will not be open. And so Paul, in prison, says, interestingly, a play there. He wants the doors open, but he's in prison praying that God would open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Now, notice the sum and the substance of Paul's ministry was proclaiming Christ. It wasn't proclaiming moral change and transformation. It wasn't proclaiming ethics. It wasn't arguing about philosophy. He said, pray that God would open a door to proclaim the mystery of Christ. And then notice what Paul says. He even asked him to pray, how? How he would communicate that, 
that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. I think it's interesting in our day we hear a lot of church growth men saying, you know, we need to reach the people where they're at. And what they mean is we need to water down the word. And Paul says, no, I don't want you to water down the word. I want you to pray that I'll be able to break down the word. And in breaking down the word, that the gospel will come with clarity because the very real danger is a man like Paul, especially, and a gifted minister will sit there and people will say, oh, he's so easy to listen to and I'm so, I'm so caught up with listening to him and, and listening to what he's saying and they'll miss the gospel. They'll miss the very thing that they need to hear the most from the man who is standing up there proclaiming the message to them. And so Paul's deep concern is not for more eloquence, though he was eloquent. It wasn't for more knowledge, though he had more knowledge than all. He said, pray for me that a door would be open, that I may proclaim Christ, and that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So that when you leave this place every Sunday, and when I go to coffee shops and stores in town and talk to people, I ought to be able to leave there, and they ought to be able to say whether they hate it or not, and whether they hate the messenger or not. They ought to be able to say, you know what, I understand what the gospel is that he is proclaiming. I may hate it. I may hate him for being the messenger that delivers it. Nevertheless, it was clear, and I understand it because God, again, God must answer that prayer to make the gospel clear. Because men by nature don't want the gospel. Men by nature pervert the gospel. Men by nature twist the scriptures to say what they want so they can live in sin. And so God says in order for all of that to be straightened out, the gospel has to be clear. Christ has to be held forth in all that the Lord Jesus is and all that he did. And look, you know what? I think it's remarkable how simple this is. Paul doesn't say, pray for me that I could preach a 27-point Puritan sermon with 50 specific applications to each and every little detailed area of your life. There's everything right with that. Paul says, pray for me that I may open my mouth and proclaim Christ. There's something so simple and so beautiful about what the people of God ought to be praying for. It's that Christ, crucified and risen, would be glorified among the people of God and in the world. And, and you know what? That takes the burden off of me. When I come to God's word, I have everything done for me. I have God's word before me. I have the gospel clearly presented in scripture. I know what I'm called to preach. I know that that's what saves sinners. You know what? They may hate it. They may hate it, but it is the thing that will bring them from death to life and will give them an inheritance with Jesus Christ. And so, thirdly, Paul now directs an application of the gospel to our words in outreach personally. Notice in verse 5, he says, Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, on first glance, this text doesn't seem to be all together about speech. It seems like Paul's shifted a little bit, and he says, Conduct yourselves wisely. That may seem like he's saying your actions out in public. I think Paul still has in view the tongue. He still has in view how the tongue is used. Now in view is how our tongues are used in public, how others perceive us, what they hear from us. And, and notice what Paul says. He says, conduct yourselves wisely toward those outside. It's not enough. It's not enough to have zeal for the gospel. You know, I think there are, there are sadly... There are some very zealous Christians who think it doesn't matter 
how they witness to people so long as they're doing it. It doesn't matter if their tone is harsh. It doesn't matter if they don't listen. It doesn't matter if they don't minister wisely. And Paul says, listen, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. You know, they're looking in. They're watching us. As I sat at the booth yesterday, I realized they're watching. People in this town are watching, and they're talking, and they're watching and talking. A lot of times they're talking. It's not godly talk. And they're going to watch what professing Christians do. They're going to watch you. When I worked in a restaurant, I told you this story before, years ago, um, there's this guy named Christopher, and I was trying to befriend him and witness to him. And Christopher said to me one day, he said, I'm watching you. And I said, I know you are. I called him Hawkeye. I said, I know you are. I said, because Jesus said, if they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. And he said, he said that? (laughs) I said, yep. I'm watching you, Hawkeye. (laughs) And Christopher and I formed a good friendship, but I realized at that moment the world is watching us. And so Paul says, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. And you know, here's what the unbelieving world wants to do. They want to see a true believer like you or me. They want to see us stumble. They want to see us fall so they can say, see... The gospel is not as great as it is. They want to hear us use our speech improperly. They want to hear us say things harshly or, or pervertedly or in an unedifying way so that they can say, see, we're not that different. And notice what Paul says. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious. This is what Jesus said. We are to be wise as serpents, gentle as a dove. Be wise, be gracious. In our outreach, in our zeal to reach people, and we ought to be zealous to reach people unless we don't care that they're going to hell. If we don't care that people are going to spend eternity in hell, if you don't care that all the people you know that don't know Jesus are going to go to hell and never get out, ever, then don't worry about any of this. Paul says, if you care, if you want Christ to be glorified, let your speech be seasoned with grace, pray for wisdom, walk wisely to those that are outside, And then notice what he says, so that you may know how to answer each person. You know, one thing I've realized as I've gotten older as a Christian is that there is no, there's no formula for reaching people with the gospel. There's a gospel formula, but there's no formula. Everybody's different. Every circumstance is different. Every interaction that you'll have with someone at work, with someone at a restaurant, with someone at a store that you're shopping at, with some friend in town that you've known for years, with somebody on Facebook, wherever it is, everyone is in a different place and we need wisdom to know how to answer each one with just the right word. This is what the Proverbs say, right? Soft answer turns away wrath. Like apples of gold on platters of silver is a word fitly spoken. It's easy just to blurt things out. It's easy not to be gracious. It's easy to be judgmental. I think nothing hurts the gospel so much, and I'll I'll close with this. Nothing hurts the gospel so much as a man or a woman who believes it, who looks judgmentally at others, who don't believe it, instead of speaking graciously with the grace of Christ on their tongue toward them, to show them that grace. It's our natural inclination. We are so hardwired to self-righteousness that our natural inclination is to make some growth spiritually and then be harsh and judgmental to people that aren't. And I think there's a lesson here. Paul says, listen, if you want to win people to Christ, if you want your tongue to be an instrument of advancing the kingdom, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how you ought to answer each person. I want to challenge you this week 
I want to challenge you to think about the speech that you use in your home, the speech that you use in conversations, how we talk to one another. Paul dealt with that in Colossians 3, 8, 9. Don't lie to one another. Put on kindness and humility. Does your speech reflect that your heart has been transformed by the gospel? I'm not saying perfectly. When you fall, we go back to Christ. We go back to the cross. We confess sin. We repent of sin. We ask him to forgive us. We ask him to cleanse us. We ask him to build us up again. But does your tongue generally reflect that you have had your life changed by the gospel? I don't think it's that hard a test. Number two, I want to ask you to pray for me, to be in prayer and to be in prayer for me, because at the end of the day, the only doors that are going to open in Richmond Hill, Georgia, are the ones that the Lord opens. And the only way I'm going to have the the spirit-wrought boldness to proclaim the gospel clearly is if God is answering our prayers. Your prayers for me, our prayers together. Number three, I want to challenge you to be intentional in zeal, in walking toward outsiders, but to be wise and to think, does my speech reflect that of my Savior? You know, when we look in the Gospels, there's one thing There's one response that people constantly have to Jesus, whether they hate him or not. In the gospel records, the one response people have to Jesus is, no one ever spoke like this man. And no one ever spoke as graciously as this man. This is the Jesus that talked about hell more than most Christians would ever be comfortable with. The Jesus that sends people to hell was the Jesus that people said, no man ever spoke as graciously as this man spoke. Now, we're united to him. We're accepted in him. We are complete in him. We have his word. We have his spirit. We are to be imitators of him as dear children. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take these heavenly truths about such a small part of our body and yet such a significant member of our body and that you would press them deep within our minds and hearts, that your spirit would write them indelibly upon our souls, that we would meditate on them and believe them. Our Father, we pray that when we speak about people, we would speak about them to you, that we would be in the practice of not speaking evil of people, but of bringing them before you for your salvation and your grace and your mercy. Our Father, we pray that you would make us wise, that you would make us prayerful, that you would give us zeal in prayer, that you would forgive us for our prayerlessness, and that you would make us a congregation that prays your kingdom come. Father in heaven, we pray that you would show us the grace and the mercy that we've received in Christ, that we may be more gracious and merciful like him. Father, teach us to imitate our Savior, for we pray these things in his name. Amen.